Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Sarah Kirschbaum-Levy, CEO of Betterment, has a fascinating background in media, brand building, marketing, as well as finance. Uh, she started out as an intern at, at Goldman Sachs. She had stints at, at Disney before going on to be chief operating officer at Nickelodeon and then eventually the Viacom Media Network. If you want to see someone who's been immersed in branding and media and marketing for her whole career, uh, it's harder to find somebody with Sarah's breadth of experience. The pivot into digital asset management at Betterment um, was a little bit of a surprise, but a lot of the skills are very transferable, and she's really done a, a, a substantial job at Betterment. They're now over $40 billion. I think they're the largest independent um, digital advisor that's out there. Yeah, Schwab and, and Vanguard and Fidelity have their own, but obviously they're coming off of trillions of dollars. This is a company that's barely a decade old and has ramped up to over $40 billion pretty um, quickly. If you're interested in marketing, branding, asset management, how to use digital tools uh, to not only make the process less expensive and the, in the user experience better, but just to give customers what they want, uh, I think you'll find this conversation to be quite fascinating. Full disclosure, my firm, Ritholtz Wealth Management, works with Betterment, which powers our digital investment platform. With no further ado, my discussion with Betterment CEO, Sarah Kirschbaum-Levy. Thank you so much, Barry, for having me. Thank you uh, for coming. I've been looking forward to this since we started chatting. What was that? At Future Proof in September, right? That's so it's right. been a couple of months. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about your early career, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, you work as an analyst at Disney, and then you're a summer intern at Goldman Sachs. What was the career plan? So I don't know if it was so much a plan. Um, I was just out of college, and I loved the media business. It, you know, thinking about you know, how did why did I land at Disney as my first job? I always looked to my parents and their careers in terms of what they loved, and and I had a belief early on that if you loved what you were doing, you were gonna give your all, and you were gonna excel, and and you were gonna want to make it, you know, a, a bigger and bigger part of your life. So, my father was a book publisher. And my mother was an antiques dealer. And if you asked them on the weekends, you know, what do you want to do? My father would roam bookstores and my mother would go antiquing it at, you know, flea markets and things. So I thought, what do I love? And I loved the movies. 
So I thought, is there a way to be in the movie business? Well, as a business executive, once you learn a little bit about the movies, you realize the movie business is not so much a great business. Um, but Disney as a brand really excited me. And so I thought I could learn sort of beyond movies and I could learn intellectual property and I could learn brands and all that. So um, so I started at Disney and I was in the corporate group where we did a lot of M&A and strategic work on behalf of the film and television division. And my summer pivot was really I was doing deals and I was doing media. Mm -hmm. And so the question for me was, is it media I love or is it deals I love? And I tested that thesis by spending the summer at Goldman. And I worked, uh, I had a great experience there. Again, great brand, great company, um, learned learned as much as you can learn in a summer, summer job. Um, but really loved the media project I was working on more than the other projects. And so that kind of led me back to media for full time. From Goldman Sachs as a summer associate to Nickelodeon, I guess you made the decision that it was media over banking. I did. That's exactly right. And, and how did it go when you began as a, a, an early employee at Nickelodeon? Well, the thing that I was attracted to at Nickelodeon really harkened back to my Disney start, which was it was a great brand and they had a great mission, which which was what's good for kids is good for business. And or, I don't know if that's a mission so much as a uh, good good slogan anyway, good, good tagline, <laughs> good tagline. But but I think it's it was really what kind of powered our thinking about our products and our services was how you know how can we enrich the content we were making for kids. And if you told people you worked for Nickelodeon, sort of like if you told them you worked for Disney, they would smile. And I right. you know I really <laughs> loved that. And I thought working for a brand that everybody loves is a really powerful idea. And so I started in strategy and, and I didn't know where it would take me, honestly, um, and grew up at the business. It was it was the time, I mean, hard to look at it now, but at the time, cable was in its growth innings and you know we were growing 30 plus percent a year and it was fun. I can imagine that was a lot of fun. Um, so from strategy, tell us about the rest of the career path you took at Nickelodeon and eventually we'll get to Viacom. Yes. So Nickelodeon, in fact, is a division of Viacom. Right. And so at the time, each of the brands were run as their own distinct business units. How, how siloed was that? Because as I was looking through um, your resume and you start looking at Viacom, it's MTV, it's Nickelodeon, it's Comedy Central, it's BT. There's like a dozen or more brands. Uh, I wasn't sure, are these all run independently or are they run as part of a big conglomerate or a little bit of each? So over my two plus decades at the company, the answer is yes and yes, right? <laughs> so there was a lot of organizational change, but in the early days when we were growing really fast, the organizational design principle was really around audiences, mm -hmm. right? And what audience you served. And so each of the brand groups, so to speak, were designed around really un understanding your customer segment and super serving them. So my group was the kids group. We then grew up into the kids and family group and added other brands into our portfolio. But there were a lot of organizational design changes over the years. And then fast forward to my second decade, um, when I started to move up to Viacom and expand beyond Nickelodeon, in those days, um, we moved to more of a platform where each of the brands certainly had separate leadership, but that leadership was really focused on content and marketing, but all of the commercial execution was was put together. 
So as you're moving up the ladder at Nickelodeon, you end up as COO at Nickelodeon? That's right. Is that right. right? How long did you do that for, and, and what was that like? I did that for over a decade, I think. Oh, really? That yes. long? Yes. And, and is that was that the springboard to COO at Parent Company Viacom? Um, that was the springboard. So what happened was, to your organizational design changes uh, point, is basically we started to merge different pieces of the business mm -hmm. and realized that we needed to be a more efficient platform, right? Obviously, the pressure of streaming started, and we started to see you know, a lot more pressure on the ad business. So you had a top line that was challenged, and you had to rethink the organizational design. And so we started to put the pieces together, and I emerged and moved up to corporate to oversee essentially the combining of the various brands. Does anything at Viacom today, what's their streaming business like? Well, now it's they've renamed the, the company, and so now it's called Paramount Global. Right. And so they have Paramount Plus, which is a... We're, we're a client. We're okay, a there you go. Um, and they also have Pluto TV, which we bought uh, while I was there, which is an ad-supported, I think they now call them fast channels, but ad-supported streaming channels. Free ad-supported television. There you go. That, that, that's really interesting. So, so you're there really in an amazing transition. You're there as, we, as the internet explodes. Like when I was growing up with the internet in the 90s, it was kind of pokey and dial-up. It wasn't until a little later that there was any real bandwidth post-dot-com uh, post implosion. Uh, you're there as uh, streaming ramps up, as video games become substantial. Uh, how do you think about how you guys did handling those changes. And then I want to ask, how do you think the rest of the media industry has done? Look, I think one of the reasons I made the career pivot I did is because it's really hard to be the analog incumbent who is needs to, you know, fight a fight in a digital war when the the new the newbies, so to speak, have cheap capital, right? right. And have the ability to candidly to invest and lose money in ways that the incumbents can't. Right. So, I think, you know, definitionally, we were risk averse. So, you know, no, also a giant legacy infrastructure with great no economics, to, right. a, a giant legacy infrastructure that had dual revenue streams and that had incredible margins. And, you know, it's always hard to compare a dollar invested in the core business that's going to return, you know, 60 cents versus a dollar invested in the new business, which, you know, is your future, but that's going to lose money out of the gate. Right. Cl classic innovators dilemma. There you go. So so I think, you know, again, this is sort of the catalyst for my career pivot later. But but I think the reality is, how did we do? You know, the streaming businesses ate our lunch, but they had a structural advantage and we were not brave. Huh, that's really interesting. By the way, it's easy to eat people's lunch when you're willing to lose billions of dollars a year to establish a brand and, and capture market share. And when capital is largely free or cheap, right? Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. the combination of those things just put us at a disadvantage. And it's interesting to watch now, actually, because one of the insights, right, the insights that the streamers had were all about the customer experience. They were about, you know, ads being, you know, interruptive to the content and, right. and consumers didn't like that, right? So they went at it and said, we're going we're gonna to design something that's delightful for the consumer. I think what what they are now learning is that the economic model that they started with was not a sustainable economic model, um, meaning they're now introducing ads, the dual revenue right. stream they're seeing, and the price point at which they were offering, call it unlimited content, really just more content, um, was, again, not sustainable. Right. And they've all raised their prices dramatically, although I would push back on the phrase delightful 
Because if you've ever gone, and this is true for everybody from Netflix to Amazon to uh, HBO, if you've ever tried to surface content, hey, I like these movies, show me that, show me what else I might like, they're not especially good at that. I, I don't think anyone's been good at that since back in the days of the Netflix DVD by mail. But everybody is, my wife is like, are you really going to just spend a half hour scrolling through nonsense? It's They don't seem to have figured that out yet, and I'm surprised. I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the sort of, you know, the algorithmic recommendation was sort of the holy grail. And I think it hasn't it hasn't worked as well. It's not that good. It's not that good. But again, if you think again, think back to the cable days. What our brands did is our brands organized content around audiences and interests. Right. And so you sort of had an advantage, right? Net. What Netflix is trying to do is serve everybody, and so you have this sea of content. And how do you sift through it? So it, it's a difficult challenge. Yeah. That that um, recommendation engine that people who liked ABC should also like. One, two, three. I'm surprised that it hasn't gotten better. But la- last subject before we, we pivot. So you're at Viacom and you're driving a lot of change. You're spearheading new new segments. Um, uh, you're, you're pushing into retail, digital gaming, consumer products, um, even Broadway shows, things like that, theme parks, video on demand. Uh, I'm going to assume you don't think that you thought that was necessary but not sufficient to fight off the big streamers? Well, I think that wasn't about fighting off the streamers so much as about expanding the business. If you if you think about really the kids' intellectual property more so, when I joined Nickelodeon, it was really about joining a kids' brand because I understood the power from my experience at Disney of kids' love and passion for characters and stories and how you could deepen their engagement with your brand through products and experiences. And so one of the reasons I went to Nickelodeon was really on that thesis, which was they were a cable channel and really a platform more than anything, right? They were, they were a platform. We were at that time sort of pre YouTube we we had 60 or 70% of all kids entertainment time was spent on Nickelodeon it was wow. an amazingly powerful platform and so the question was you have their attention you're building these characters and stories they love how do you take that love and immerse them more deeply in your brand and those characters from SpongeBob to Dora the Explorer to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? These were the the great brands of my tenure there, and so um, so that's what we did. We said, okay, you know, look at Disney, right? They have theme parks, they have hotels, they have toys and T-shirts, et cetera, et cetera, and all of that was opportunity. I think that was less so an opportunity in the in the adult targeted brands, right? Adults don't, you know, when they fall in love with a character or a story, like there's only so much Jersey Shore you want to wear on your T-shirt, right? (laughs) To, To say the very least. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So we discussed Nickelodeon's entrance into gamings and products and other things. How did you come away from that experience? Was it just about maximizing revenue or was it really about building out the brand? I think for me it was about building out the brand and it was also about scaling and optimizing an operation. So I just picture a big boardroom when you're going in to make the pitch, hey, we have to go beyond just doing shows for kids. There's a whole universe of ways we can monetize our intellectual property. What what was that pitch like? Uh, am I am I remotely close to, you know that that um, stereotypical image? And and how difficult was it to get a big giant and already successful company? to embrace a whole new set of revenue streams. So I just shivered when you put the image of the big boardroom back in, yeah. in my mind, right? That I think well, Is that accurate or is that, that just well, a... Well, no, that, that's accurate for sure. Um, I think, you know, the pitch, the way in which we entered the business, and again, back to my comment earlier that, you know, I don't think we were brave. We, were li- we licensed the content. So it didn't require an enormous investment, right? So mm-hmm. we would work with toy companies. We worked with the hotel business. We worked with cruise ships and basically lent them our characters in exchange for revenue. So there was a, a really a lot of scrutiny around kind of the brand impact and the brand risk potential, thinking about the downside of doing some of that, right? right. What if a kid gets hurt with a toy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, okay. Right. So so I think we put we, we thought about that quite a bit. And, and there were products and services we were unwilling, like people would pitch us things like a kid's credit card. Right. And encouraging <laughs> kids to go into debt was not exactly part no, of the no, brand plan. Right. It, it's it's great because they're not um, 18 so they could walk away from the. The debt, right? Or did did their parents have to coast? I think the what's good for kids is good for business really prevailed on that one. So yeah. in any event, we, we considered all sorts of things and people would pitch us. So I the think SpongeBob bow and arrow didn't didn't, didn't take off. It didn't no? it didn't make the cut. No, <laughs> not at all. Um but I will say that um we did have a few times when we had some sort of braver ideas around, you know, investing more deeply in some of these segments. And those did require pitches, you know, exactly as you exactly as you say. And we ultimately didn't decide to go forward with bigger investments, right? Buying a part of a theme park, you know, franchise, for example. So we we never we never made that move. Other companies made other decisions there, right? NBC, Universal, right, right, Disney, etc. It, it, it's interesting to see that the more successful a company is, the more risk averse they tend to be. They don't want to, you know, don't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. It, I mean, it's inevitable, right? You're also your public company. You're living quarter to quarter, and the considerations are different. To say, to say the the very least. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, media as so different than finance. But really, does it all come down to these are consumer brands, and if you can 
build a brand and show its value proposition and present it uh, in a in a smart way to an audience. It doesn't matter whether it's digital investing or kids programming. Branding is branding. I mean, I think from a branding and marketing standpoint, yes, um, I do think it translates incredibly well. And I think ultimately, your brand needs to meet a need or solve a pain point for a consumer, right? And so it all starts with the consumer and the consumer research. And that was something that we were incredibly good at at Viacom with all of these really, really targeted niche brands. We we really invested a lot in our research and in understanding that consumer. So I think that translates incredibly well. T- tell us a little bit about what that process is like, because you always picture a bunch of people in a room with a two-way mirror and ask, showing them clips or showing them toys. What was the, the consumer research like at Viacom? So, I mean, there's so many levels, you know, both both uh, quantitative and qualitative. So there were a lot of focus groups. There was a lot of instant feedback in the form of ratings and analysis sort of, you know, post facto, right, after you air the programming. There was pilot testing. I mean, we would sit with kids and show them pictures of characters and, you know, they would comment. Um, at every step of the way, we were basically bringing things to kids and watching them react. Do they laugh? You know, do they hug the the toy? You know, are they are they drawn into the character? So, um, so we tested storylines, we tested characters, um, and then that was sort of early days in content. Um, we did less, I think, now when you think about digital testing and you think about sort of A/B testing messages. Right. The ability to do that really was transformed kind of over time as we started to build a digital footprint. But again, all of this was in service of asking the right questions of your consumer and getting to them in kind of different ways and then triangulating where to next. Um, And then we had to take these brands, of course, and move them off of television, not just into toys, but building a digital footprint was sort of the next, you know, the next act. And you realized, and there was a tension in that too, right? Because there was sort of, are you giving away your content for free or are you immersing your audience in the content? And understanding each of these platforms was different. And so I think all of that really translates as you build a brand. You, You have to think about what platforms are you on and what's the purpose of being in those, you know, on those platforms. So... Really, really, really interesting. How, how different is children's programming when you're doing that sort of research to adults? Because there are so many infamous stories about shows testing poorly and hanging on. And that Seinfeld comes to mind, tested really poorly, goes on to become one of the most popular shows of all time. And uh, things like um, Raiders of the Lost Ark couldn't get couldn't get made or Star Wars had trouble finding a studio that nobody liked the tests of it. Uh, Is it different with kids? Are they more unguarded and immediate? And then how do you figure out how to apply that when you're looking at BET or Comedy Central or even MTV, which is sort of in between age-wise? We thought of everything as an input. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have to take everything with a grain of salt in the sense that let's say you're doing, you know, three or four focus groups. You've got 10 or so people in each of those focus groups. You're trying to pull themes and insights. Sometimes one loud person in the focus group can impact everybody else. So you're watching for that. Um, I think in kids, what you're really looking for is you're just looking for sparks and and sometimes their physical reaction 
is as much as they're sometimes they don't have the vocabulary we we had preschool television right? right sometimes they don't have the vocabulary to articulate in the way that adults do you know i didn't like that character he was mean or whatever right but you could just see them shiver or you could see them smile or you right they're so, authentic and organic you don't have to worry the words don't matter that's right and and some stuff is again we do quantitative testing qualitative testing sometimes you would do dial testing right during uh-huh. you'd, you'd air an episode and you'd see like what are the places where they either laugh or turn up the dial or down the dial so all sorts of different um, tactics and methods, um, but it's art and science. I think that's, you know, the great creators have an instinct and it can't just be about, you know, what happened in that focus group. So now let's pivot to thinking about digital investing platforms and betterment. How transferable are these skills when you're looking into what does an online investor really want? So I think there are transferable skills and then there are, there's a ton I had to learn, right? Uh-huh. So in terms of transferable skills, you know, we were talking earlier about branding and marketing, right? I think that media is particularly excellent at that, right? And we had not just a house of brands in terms of Nickelodeon and MTV and Comedy Central, but then each of our intellectual properties, each of our shows was effectively a brand, right? You had to launch it and you needed to have a brand plan. So SpongeBob had, and I'm sure has today, a 10 or 15 year brand plan at all times. 15 years for SpongeBob, out ahead. Out ahead. Like, let's plan on these kids who will be born in a decade. That's right. Wow, that's right. That's you're thinking amazing. about movies. You're thinking about television series. You're thinking about how to, you know, how to how to keep the excitement alive. Themes. Um, so anyway, so all of that discipline is, I think, an incredibly good learning ground that then can apply to any brand building. I think similarly, as we were talking about all the platforms, right? The idea of how do you expose your brand? Where do you expose your brand? Um, so all of that, I think, I think works incredibly well, regardless of industry. Um, operational excellence is something that in any business, right? You need to figure out, which comes down to um, setting, you know, setting the rules and the parameters and what do you measure, right? Right. And um, how important is efficiency relative to growth, right? These are all concepts that travel across businesses. Um, and then I think people management and organizational design is is a really important part of, um, of of any business, right? Is how do you build a team that works well together, and how do you put sort of the right structure around that team and um, the right organizational design? And and I had a lot of learning there because you know we reorganized every I don't know twelve or eighteen months over my twenty years at at wow. Viacom. So I think that all of that is is transferable. Huh. Really, really intriguing. So let's talk a little bit about um, 800,000 customers. That's a lot of customers. Yes, it is. Uh, what is it like trying to stay on top of all of that? That that seems like that's an immense number of, of users. Well, we, um, we've we been at it a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know. When, when did Betterment launch? Betterment launched in 2010. So 13 so years seems, strong. Seems, I mean, my firm is 10 years old and it went by like that. 13 years seems not, you know, not, you guys are relatively new, not as new as we are, but still relatively young, right? Sure. I mean, in the, if you think about the arc of the 
wealth management business, sure, we're relatively young. But I think when you <coughs> consider the digital wealth management space, um, we were we were early and I'm one of the OGs, if you mm-hmm. will. Sure. Um, but we those 800,000 customers actually are across three lines of business. Mm-hmm. So we are best known for our what was once called a robo-advisor. I like to right. think of it as a digital wealth management platform I, now. I hate the name robo-advisor. I agree with you. It's not a robot, and it's not there to provide advice. It's a platform that you build on top of. That's at least that's how I think of it. But well, I think that in the I think that's exactly right. I also think that in the early days, it was a simpler idea, right? Mm-hmm. Which was fulfilling a simple promise of low cost and automation and bringing access to investors who previously didn't have access to great advice, bringing sort of the the simplest uh, and clearest advice to that group and therefore expanding access. Um, Now, what we're learning, and we'll get it, we'll get into sort of the what's happened over the last decade, is that that's really only the beginning. Um, And so for us, I think we think of sort of the robo-advisor as the first act, Mm -hmm. and we then took that platform and thought long and hard about what do the clients really need, and some of them want human advice, for example, right? The technology is not not sufficient unto itself. So we extended that platform to the advisor community, to RIAs, right? So the idea there was we have great tools, great technology that can scale and that can help advisors scale their practices. We don't need to compete with advisors. We can actually enable their success. So that was the next business line. And then we added a third business line, which is a 401k business for for small and medium-sized businesses. And so that is interesting because in all three business lines, they're very different. The customer segments are very different. But what they share is that the big guys and the established and incumbents all serve enterprise incredibly well and serve serve wealthy people incredibly well. And in all three instances, we are expanding access through the use of technology. So, so you mentioned low cost and automation, and I wanted to circle back to that because the automation is what enables low cost. In fact, so for, uh, again, good at uh, what we do with Liftoff is we have betterment power um our digital platform, but we attach a live human advisor to that. And that wouldn't be financially viable if you're doing everything the way a traditional RIA does it, because that's pricey. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of costs. You guys on the back end plugged into this make it very, very cost efficient so that the minimums go away. Forget Five million or one million, there's no minimum. You want to open an account with ten thousand dollars? You can, and a person can talk to you about it. But the process of opening the account, funding it, onboarding it, all the labor-intensive human activities that a ten million dollar client wants someone holding their hands, you guys have come up with a really, really great set of technologies to automate that. Thank you. That's exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. So, so what made you early on some of your competitors thought the RIA industry was very much their competitors? Uh, how did you guys look at, and I know some of this predates your, your tenure, but what made Betterman say, hey, this is uh, a part of the industry that we shouldn't ignore? 
It does predate me. Uh, I think that's right. So I, I've been in the CEO seat for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so John Stein, our founder, um, he really saw around corners, right? And I think you know what was so great about him, and, and I think tends to be true of founders in general, is they're always innovating. They're always thinking about the next idea. And I think there were sort of two motivations for him. You know, one was, well, wait a minute, why, why don't the RIAs, why don't the human advisors like us? Why do they see us as a threat? And as he started to dig in, he said, well, wait a minute, we don't have to be a threat. And this is another this is another way to meet customers where they are, right? Because some customers, you know, young, digital, savvy, you know, not a huge uh, amount of assets yet may be okay with a completely digital solution. But what he started to understand, and through you know talking to customers, was that as customers became more sophisticated and had life events, right, got married, bought a home, their needs became more complex, and they wanted to talk to someone. And so, understanding that, he understood that there were limitations, sort of to the. Um, to the reach that you could have if you were only serving customers directly. And so rather than say, you know, we're anti-human interaction, he said, let's embrace that and let's understand that technology plus humans is better. So how can we be great technology and great service? And the way to do that was through the RIA community. But, But you're right that in the early days, it wasn't so much that we saw the RIAs as our competitors, it's that they saw us as a competitor. Right, and so one of your competitors, who I won't mention by name, was very adversarial with the RIA community. They have, you know, a fraction of your assets, but they also aren't really working with advisors. Recognizing the different market segments seemed to have been a big win for you guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a mistake to not embrace the whole market, right, and to not recognize that. Look, there are customers who feel comfortable. I've had a financial advisor myself personally for 20 years, right? And and that provides, you know, peace of mind and it provides and it's a relationship, right? This is a relationship. Technology is never going to replace a relationship. Um, technology can enhance the service that that relationship provider can give you, but it's never going to replace it. And I think recognizing that is one of the things that differentiates us as a brand. Yeah, to say, to, absolutely. So you mentioned John Stein. You come in uh, to CEO of Betterment following a founder. That's always a tough spot. Tell us a little bit what that was like. Well, it's funny. So I came from such a different world, right? I came from the corporate world and I didn't know from founders. And and so I had no expectation. And in my experience, changes of leadership were somewhat commonplace, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, when you're at a big company, things change. And All so and so I met John um, through a actually a business school classmate of mine knew a board member at Betterment, which was kind of my path to Betterment. And so I first met this board member and she introduced me to John. And I think he was at a moment in his career where he was thinking, look, I built this thing and I'm sort of, I'm getting antsy. I'm, I'm kind of ready for the next. And I want this to be a big business to scale, whether it goes public or whatever the next act of this business is, it's an act that I have not had experience in. And he was self-aware enough to understand that now maybe was the time if, if Betterment was gonna kind of take the next step, maybe there was a different kind of leadership that could help do that. 
so he was meeting candidates and we met and we got along incredibly well. He's still on the board. Um, so he's a sounding board for things. But we brought really different skills to the party, right? He was not a marketer and a brand builder. Right. And I think in the early days, there was a thought here that sort of, if you build it, they will come. And this idea that like, you know, a product-led gro- product led growth was the ho- sort of holy grail, right? And I think that in the early days, that was a good theory. I think the reality is what the, what John and others who sort of innovated around his time did is they pushed the whole industry to embrace technology maybe faster than they would have, right, out of fear, right? Not unlike my experience in the media business, right, which was you can't ignore – you can't put blinders on and ignore streaming. You got to jump in. It's so funny you say that because it's streaming and media – it's Tesla and the rest of the auto industry and EVs. It's Amazon forcing everybody to have some online retail. A, a technological disruptor comes in, and it's not just that one company. The entire industry has to take notice and say, either we adapt or we get left behind. That's right. That's and, right. And that's really, really substantial. So from where you sit coming from a media background, is it safe to say leadership is leadership. It doesn't matter what the product is that you're selling. You're leading people. I think so. I mean, I think that um, there's certainly you need some experts in the mix, right? I'm not going to say that, you know, no industry experience needed here, right? But you can do that within the context of a balanced team. And so I think, you know, I happen to I happen to have a fantastic team. And the team is really made up of a bunch of folks who were here before I was and are really deep experts in the space. And then we complemented them with a handful, four or five new folks who I brought from the outside who had a fresh perspective and maybe had a different skill set. Huh, really intriguing. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the digital investment platforms. These more or less launched after the financial crisis, kind of 2010s or so. Um, There were some great expectations when some of the initial uh, companies launched. Many of your competitors have not lived up to those lofty expectations. How do you look at 
the field and say, why have some of these companies just not gotten it done? So I think in general, there was a sort of a fear, fear slash expectation, right, that digital was going to you know, take over the business, right? And so that obviously had big dollar signs in people's there, eyes. There was a gold rush for a while. Right. People spent a lot of money buying digital platforms. Uh, many of those purchases did not work out, but it was pretty, um, it looked like, hey, these guys are coming to eat our lunch. Right. And I think, look, that's not unlike the sort of digital boom and bust in every industry, right? Which is, think about Amazon, right? Amazon won, but there was there were, there was a lot of roadkill by the side of the road, right? Whether it was eToys or, you know, to right, to remember just a brand name, right? There were a whole number of these firms. Pets.com is the one that sticks out to me. Right. Like, they all emerged. They all, I mean, Amazon was books, right? It wasn't the everything store. It was books. And I think, um, you know, they, they won because they were excellent, right? And they delivered. They they had they were maniacal about the consumer, right? And they and they just continued to build off of um, super serving that consumer. And I regardless think, of profit, they're willing to postpone joy in order to do the heavy serve, stuff up right? Front, right? Because they knew that referrals and customers who loved them was the holy grail, right? Yeah. And so you know they won. So I think the same can be said in in any industry, right? I mean, Netflix has is is the clear leader. Um, in the streaming space, and I think you know I intend for Betterment to be the clear leader in the digital wealth management space. So, what does Betterment have to do to distinguish itself from the rest of the pack? And the rest of the pack includes Vanguard as well as a bunch of other much smaller um, clean sheet startups in, in the space. So my aspiration is sort of what what Amazon did for Walmart, right? Which is it pushed them to be better, um, and but ultimately there's room for both. I think that is very true in the wealth management space as well. So I think you know Schwab and Fidelity and Vanguard, like those are the great brands. Those are my parents' brands, right? And, and they all have their own in-house digital platform. That's right, because they knew that that has to be part of the mix. And I think similarly, right, if I think about those as brands, I think the technology is a start, but I think building a brand that understands the customer segment you serve is going to be critically important um, in terms of who wins and who loses. And so what I aspire to for Betterment is that we should become the millennial and Gen Z wealth management brand the way Schwab or Fidelity serve our parents. Huh. That, that, that's intriguing. Um, so when you're doing the sort of customer uh, analysis that you did back at Viacom at Betterment, what are you finding from both your existing clients and, and people who are potential clients? What is it that the consumer is looking for in advice from a digital platform? So I think first and foremost, they are looking for great technology and great service. So so when you say great technology, I think of ease of use, user interface, those sorts that, of things. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and they've grown up, right, with a phone in their hand, so to speak, right? And so I think what, what uh, worked for customers a generation ago, I think the expectations are just raised, right? And so in terms of what technology can deliver, it has to be on mobile, not just ease of use, but ease of use on mobile. I want to be able to do everything on my phone. Don't make me sit down at the computer, for example, right? And that's actually not the way we were born, right? A decade ago, these digital platforms were online as opposed to digital. And we've moved the word online to digital because really we need to be mobile first, right? right? And I think um, 
I wouldn't say that Betterment was sort of first in its class on recognizing the power of mobile in this space because when we were when we originated the brand and the business. Um, we thought this is a considered purchase. And as a considered purchase, people are going to sit down at their desktop and they're going to do their research. And that still is true for a lot of folks when they sign up. But once you have this, your your wealth somewhere, you want to be able to check it. And you want to be able to check it wherever you are, you know, in the bathroom, online, wherever you are. And that's on your phone. And so that's been a huge push, you know, during my tenure the last couple of years is is saying we need to think mobile first. So that's just an example of sort of usability and where you need to be and perhaps obvious but critical. All right, so you started with an online platform. You go to mobile. If we're looking at the next great technology, uh, it's almost a cliche to say AI is going to change all these things. How does a digital online investment platform use AI to make itself and its products more desirable to its clients? So AI, think of it as supercharging everything we do, mm-hmm. right? So it's causing us really to relitigate every process we have and say, can we do it better, stronger, faster? And how can technology enable that? So we're starting really in the back office, and that's both internal and customer facing. So think about, you know, writing first drafts of marketing pieces, right? Get, you know, putting some inputs, giving an assignment to the AI and letting them draft something that you can then use as a jumping off point. Think about customer, that's just an example. Think about customer service. Um, not necessarily, I think a chat bot can answer simple questions, but also you can have AI develop more sophisticated answers that then the human service operator can translate for the consumer, right? So speeding up every one of those interactions. Think about a brand new engineer joining the team who doesn't know you know, anything about Betterment and needs to find, you know, find his or her way you know, we have an opportunity to get them up to speed faster, right? Because there's just more information easily accessible at their at their fingertips. So what I don't see AI doing, or at least not yet, is replacing the, the fiduciary role that we play, mm-hmm. right? Which is um, we have a responsibility to our customers uh, that is highly regulated and that requires that we act in their best interest. And there still is a lot in the technology where there's what they call hallucination, right? Are they giving good advice? So so we think that the, the technology is an enable, enabler, but not so much a replacement for. So, so I love the term hallucination. You never worked at Roku, and you never worked at UBS, but when I'm done with my research, I'll then run it through uh, uh, ChatGBT4 and Perplexity, which are, one is Claude and one is the, uh, I forgot the other driver, just to see what comes up, and oh, I missed, how did I miss Roku? How did I miss UBS? Turns out I didn't. They were wrong and hallucinating, which is why you have to have a human double-check it, but it, it, it still has this reach and depth that it's so quick and so easy it it really creates um you know a first draft is really a good way to think about it as long as you're fact checking it and aware that it's often wrong that's right and you have to have guardrails right and so i think we're being very thoughtful in in how we deploy ai but i think we would be foolish not to be embracing the technology because you know if we can speed everything up we do by 10% or 15% using the technology then you know better stronger faster right and and we usually measure productivity gains in in you know single decimal points 
10% or 15% is just immense. That's that's a game-changing uh, improvement. Yeah. I mean, you talk about do more with less, right? I mean, this is the greatest example. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get to our favorite questions, I have a curveball question to throw at you. You are currently a board member for the Lucius N. Litauer Foundation, as well as Funko and Catalyte. Tell us a little bit about those organizations. Sure. So I'll start with Lucius Litauer is a foundation, and we support access to opportunity, and we support a series of Jewish causes. There was a a man named Lucius Litauer, and he passed away without any heirs. And so we have a group of people who are entrusted to um, carry on his legacy. So that's that's been a, a a great one. For more than 10 years, I've been doing that. Um, Funko Inc. is a pop culture company. It's a public company. Mm -hmm. Um, You may have heard of Funko Pop, which are like little sort of plastic uh, characters. That's the signature item we sell. But really, when you think about fandom, it's a fan company. Uh Um, And that's been, again, a lot of fun. That's been my first public company board. And then Catalyte, is a more recent board that I joined, and that is a company that sits actually at the intersection of AI and diversity and inclusion. And it's about creating pathways for underrepresented groups who don't have four-year college degrees into higher earning jobs using AI to understand aptitude and likelihood of success. And it's a cool company. Sounds really interesting. All right, so we only have you for a few more minutes. Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, you're the perfect person to ask this question. What are you streaming these days? Tell us about what you're watching on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or Disney or Paramount Plus or anything you might be streaming. So I binge constantly. Um, The new season of Slow Horses. uh, Season three, right? Season three. That's one that, uh, that I've recently streamed um it's a really interesting show it's it's a great show that's on apple i love it that's on apple yep um i loved uh also on apple i loved lessons in chemistry which i read the book oh really that that's in my queue and i haven't gotten to it that's a good one i really liked it but i also read the book so Uh um so those those are two of my I, i love um oh i just watched the pacific which is an old, which is a spinoff of Band of Brothers. HBO must have recently sold a bunch of stuff to Netflix, so it surfaced in my algorithm. And it was a spinoff of Band of Brothers, and uh-huh. it was about it's about World War Two. Didn't Band of Brothers end up there also? It did, it did. But I had seen that, and I had never heard of the Pacific. But it it surfaced, and I watched that it was about the Pacific Theater during World War Two. Really interesting. Um, since you're mentioning uh, wartime. Um, shows. Have you seen All the Light You Cannot See? Oh, so not only have I seen it, but it's one of my favorite books. Fantastic. Real, and they did a great job. They on did. The show. They did. Hugh Laurie's it's just, great. What is it? Six episodes, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I wanted it to it keep was going. Real, yeah, it was real. It was one of those things. You're when you're sad when a show ends. It's yeah. like that's how you know it's a really good, uh, a, a really good show. Um, tell us about your early mentors who helped shape your career. My early mentors were were really my bosses. Um, so I worked early on for a, a guy uh, at Disney named Peter Murphy, who was a, a great mentor to me, and then um, a woman named Ann Sarnoff, who became uh, ultimately was running the Warner Brothers studio. She she was my first job out of business school, um, and then a fellow who was the COO at Nickelodeon before I was named Jeff Dunn, who went on to run Sesame Workshop. Those were probably my three. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites? What are you reading right now? So uh, I love historical fiction. 
and I love a good beach read. So right now I am reading the Elon Musk biography, and I'm also reading Demon Copper uh, Demon Copperhead, which mm-hmm. is a Barbara Kinsolver, which is fantastic. Demon Copperhead. What is what sort of book is that? It's about a little boy uh, who grows up in foster care, um, and I think it's going to be about the opioids crisis. But I haven't oh, gotten really? to that. I haven't gotten to that part huh. yet. You know, we mentioned Innovator's Dilemma earlier. Did you ever read Loon Shots? I did not. So it, uh, it's by by a professor. I'm drawing a blank on his name at the moment. But it's how every company is really two companies. One is that small startup. Um, and the other is the uh, company that has um, its own ongoing um, revenue source. And how do you balance the need to not eat your seed corn, but at the same time take occasional moonshots? Um, and it, it's a challenge for a lot of companies. Apple is an example of a company that is willing to cannibalize their own products in order to stay ahead of the competition. Really, really just fascinating and i thought of it because of of what you had said earlier um big companies tend not to do these moonshots the name name of the book is loon shots i'm sure i'll it'll pop into my head later um uh our, our last two questions what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either media or investing so I always think the training, per- the investment banking training programs are a good way to start. They're sort of like boot camp for a couple of years where they, you know, teach you to understand P&Ls and financial modeling. And I think that's a really transferable skill. So I think those are fantastic programs. I also think these days, you know, whether I'm a financial company or a technology company is sort of a question we ask ourselves every day. And I think sure. the answer is both. But engineering and computer science is an incredibly fabulous career these days. And I think opens a lot of doors. Um, but that appeals to, a, you know, a certain a certain segment of the population. And our final question, what do you know about the world of branding, marketing, or technology and investing? Today, you wish you knew 25 or so years ago, when you're really getting started? Well, the world of investing, I would say, um, I did not fully appreciate the power of starting early and the power of, you know, compounding, mm-hmm. um, you know, save what you can. I think I also underappreciated, really until I got to Betterment, I underappreciated how much costs and taxes can undermine investing returns. And so to be to be cognizant of those things. And then lastly, I would say, um, take advantage early on of the of what the government offers in terms of tax advantaged accounts, because that can be a real step up. So whether that's for participating in a company 401k or IRAs, right, these are all great opportunities for saving. Well, well, thank you, Sarah, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Sarah Kirschbaum-Levy. She is the CEO of Betterment. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of the previous 500 we've had over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Bloomberg, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter while it's still around at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts at Podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that puts these conversations together each week. My audio engineer is Kaylee LaPara. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. Atika Valbron is my project manager. 
I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.